Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. August recess has already begun for the House and is poised to begin this weekend for the Senate. Now is the time to get on the calendars of your representatives and senators to talk with them about NAHU's legislative priorities. What are those priorities? On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, R.C. Buckner is here to discuss them. Before we get into this summer's tailored talking points, why is August recess a good time to snag an appointment with your federal elected official? This is a great time to make an appointment with your representative or senators because during August recess, they are typically back in their home states, home districts. So you're able to make an appointment with them without having to come here to DC like many of you do during our February Capitol Conference. So this is a great time to be able to locally have an appointment and be able to meet with them and really bring your experiences to life and color them while you're meeting with them in your communities. And if anyone listening has any questions about making appointments, they can email our Director of Government Affairs, Hosni Abdelaziz, at H-A-B-D-E-L-A-Z-I-Z at NAHU.org. If you're not sure how to reach out to your representative or senators to make an appointment, Husni can provide you with that information so that you're able to contact their office and more specifically their in-district office to try to make those in-person appointments while they're home during August recess. And once you've completed those appointments, you can submit any follow-up information from your summer in-district meetings on our August recess debrief page, which is included in this week's edition of the Washington Update, as well as on NAHU.org under advocacy under legislative issues right underneath our federal policy priorities. So let's get into our priorities. Let's start with what may be a familiar section to some, market stabilizers for the individual and employer markets. What is NAHU asking from lawmakers here? As many of you know, over the past several years, one of our most repetitive statements has been about making sure we're continuing to stabilize the market through a number of different means. One of those is making sure that we are stabilizing the employer market and making sure that we are preserving the employer-sponsored market. One of the ways to do so is to protect the employer tax exclusion. This is that provision that allows employees to deduct from their income the funds that employers provide to them in the form of health insurance benefits. And this employer tax exclusion, as it's called, is seen as possibly a way if the tax exclusion is 
repealed or if it's somehow capped and those benefits are taxed at a certain percentage, that this could be a way of increasing funds into the the federal treasury. We, however, believe that taxing these benefits could lead to one of the largest increases in taxes for middle-class Americans that we've seen in quite some time and could also lead to, with that benefit that it provides to employers, it could lead to some employers choosing not to continue to offer employer-sponsored coverage. So we do believe that this is one of the largest provisions that could help to stabilize the market to preserve the employer tax exclusion. And that's why we make sure that we're talking about this on a regular basis. Another aspect for stabilizing the market that touches on employer-sponsored coverage is employer reporting. We know there are a lot of small problems that kind of all add up to, to larger issues when it gets to employer reporting. So we work alongside a number of our coalitions to develop a suggestion for a prospective reporting system. So employers are reporting at the beginning of the year what they're offering. This also helps on the back end for any employees that try to go to the exchanges and get a subsidy. When they get that question on the exchange as to whether they're being offered an affordable offer of coverage by their employer, that question doesn't really sink to them as being an actual legal question for what the definition of affordable is. And so they may mark the wrong answer there and unknowingly sign up and receive a subsidy, not knowing they're going to have to pay it back later because they did actually get an affordable offer of coverage. And so if employers are reporting that at the beginning, then We believe this could prevent a lot of those instances from happening, along with some of the suggestions in our proposal that would also do away with employees having to report to their employers the social security numbers of dependents that aren't even enrolled in employer-sponsored coverage. That's just extra information that the employer doesn't need to have. And then shifting to some other pieces that touch not just employer-sponsored care, but also with stabilizing the market, bringing down the cost of prescription drugs, looking at different ways to do this, like methods that are used by other countries, looking at the International Drug Pricing Index. There are a number of pieces that have been looked at by Congress and past administrations that have just not quite been able to make it to the finish line that need to be revised and reviewed by Congress as a means to try to get to that point of bringing down the cost of prescription drugs, which could bring down the cost of insurance overall and again lead to stabilizing the market. Another piece is fixing the family glitch. This is that issue where if you have specifically with spouses, one spouse that is the employee that's offered employer-sponsored coverage that is deemed quote-unquote affordable. If that employer also offers coverage for the spouse, regardless of how much the employer is covering that spousal coverage, even if they're offering zero dollars towards coverage of a spouse, If they are offering the employed spouse an affordable offer of coverage 
And there's the opportunity to offer coverage for the spouse that's not employed by that employer. Then if that other spouse goes to the exchange, they're deemed as having an affordable offer of coverage, even if that employer is not contributing anything towards that spousal coverage. So that results in that spouse not being able to receive any type of contribution towards their coverage in the marketplace. So we do think that this family glitch needs to be revised in the way that it's developed under the ACA. So that employee eligibility for affordable coverage does not extend to the other family members if there's not an affordable employer contribution for the dependents' coverage. And one new portion in this market stabilizer section is in regards to telehealth. What are we asking in this area? We've talked about telehealth before, but we haven't had it specifically on our priorities in this fashion. So this is new compared to some of our talking points in the past. And this is legislation that is supported by Senator Manchin, who many of you have seen in the news. He is that moderate Democrat that is seen as kind of a swing vote, especially with how close the majority and minority are in the Senate. So it's great that we are able to support him and have a dialogue with his office. And this legislation would allow health providers to continue to reach patients at their home for medical checkups and screenings by extending the telehealth flexibilities in the CARES Act. So that was that piece in the legislation from several months ago or around COVID and the pandemic that allowed for special restrictions to be lifted for patients to use telehealth for a number of different different types of services. And this is restricted to telehealth appointments when clinically appropriate. So we are definitely not talking about brain surgery or anything like that being done via telehealth, but only when clinically appropriate. And their goal is also to make sure that some of the rural and underserved communities are able to access healthcare providers even beyond this public health emergency. And this extends to some of the great benefits that we've seen during this time, especially around mental health and trying to maintain that access that many have had because of these restrictions being lifted during the pandemic. A new section in our legislative priorities this summer is in regards to the Consolidated Appropriations Act, specifically the broker compensation disclosure requirements that the law established. So what assistance are we seeking from lawmakers in this area? Dan, I really like the way that you asked that question with what assistance are we asking for from members of Congress? And the reason why I'm pointing that out is because there are certain aspects from the Consolidated Appropriations Act, or CAA, as we'll call it, that now have gone to the agencies for rulemaking. And so the ball's out of the court of Congress. They passed the CAA, and now the agencies are responsible for writing rules on how it's going to go into effect. Two of the major provisions under the CAA are the broker disclosure rules, like Dan mentioned, that will require agents and brokers to disclose all indirect and direct compensation on contracts over a certain amount. Obviously, I'm giving a very brief summary there of what it would do. And the other aspect that we're asking for assistance on 
is a section that requires employers to disclose certain aspects of their plan benefits, such as prescription drug information, aspects that the pharmacy benefit managers, the PBMs, really are the ones that have access to, not the employers, down to asking the employers to report the number of pills of a specific type of prescription drug that have been administered under their plan, the top 50 drugs that have been prescribed. Once again, all information that is something that the employers don't necessarily own the access to the information. So right now, as the agencies are looking at all of this, we are sitting in August of 2021. And these provisions are set to go into effect at the end of this year, at the very end of December of 2021. And we still don't have the guidance for either of these aspects that we're really honing in on here. There are many others in the CAA that we're also concerned about, but here we're focusing on these two for our ask to Congress for their assistance. And what we're asking them is their support. We have sent letters to the agencies explaining this issue that we don't have rules yet. We're coming up to the end of the year without more information and guidance from the agencies on exactly how they want us to implement the CAA the way that Congress passed it. We need more information. And so here we're asking when you're meeting with Congress for their support because they are allowed to talk to the agencies. So for them to really just support us and our ask to delay the implementation of these sections of the CAA until we have the rulemaking from the agencies. Another reason why we're asking Congress to support us on this is because that implementation date for the end of this year is in the statute. It's something that Congress wrote. So if they support us in asking the agencies for a delay past the date in the statute that they passed, it just increases our impact when asking the agencies to enforce a delay. If you are looking for a new way to complete your annual Medicare Advantage training, NAHU should be your first stop. Created by agents, for agents, the NAHU certification program meets all CMS requirements, plus our training program provides free CE and bonus material that will give you new and important information to assist you in helping your clients throughout the year. The Plan Year 2022 course is now available through NAHU's Benefits Specialist Online Learning Institute, so log on to NAHU.org now and register. Moving on, of course, NHU is opposed to Medicare for All and public option proposals. But what specific message are we trying to get across to lawmakers in this area this summer? In the past, talking about Medicare for All has been a larger threat. At this point, of course, we are still including talking points on Medicare for All. It is still important to talk about. It is still a threat. We're including in our talking points a lot of statistics on exactly how much it would cost down to the average tax increase of $24,000 per household in a year to pay for this. So we are still talking about this. However, 
something that is possibly more of a threat in the near-term future is the public option. So we are adding a bit more in our talking points about a public option. And this is different than Medicare for All. It's not where all access to coverage would go through Medicare or all would go through a government-sponsored system. This is where there would be a separate market, the public option. And in that separate market, there would be government-negotiated contracts with carriers. And those would be accessible to either the entire public to anyone, or in some proposals, that market would be open to certain populations, certain communities. And a lot of the risks here are that this could be a gateway to Medicare for all. If we have this public option market, and this is different than the marketplace, than those healthcare.gov plans, because the public option plans would be government negotiated, the marketplace plans are not. And remember, in marketplace plans, if it's available in the marketplace, it has to be available the same outside of the marketplace in the private market. For a public option plan, that requirement would not be there. So there are concerns that these government negotiated rates within a public option would be so low that it could price the private market out of business leading to public option plans really being the only ones available, which would then be kind of de facto Medicare for all. So leading to government negotiated plans really being the only option that are available. So a near-term threat of public option leading to a longer-term threat of Medicare for all. And we want to make sure that we're talking about this. There's also the concern that with a rise in popularity of public option plans or those government negotiated rate plans, that some physicians and especially hospital systems and rural hospitals may not be able to keep their doors open with those government negotiated rates on reimbursement. So think about Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement, what physicians and hospitals are receiving. If these are government negotiated rates that are closer to those rates, if those public option plans become so popular that there are very few private market plans, are hospitals going to be able to afford to still offer care if those are the only rates that they are being reimbursed? So there are a lot of different considerations to think about here, not just that near term to long term of the viability of the market, but also access to care, especially in some of those rural areas. So finally, we have a section on our priorities within the Medicare space, which includes some familiar priorities. Some of those familiar talking points include our request for COBRA to be treated as credible coverage for Medicare. As some of you may remember right now, if you age onto Medicare and for some reason you go onto COBRA instead of Medicare, when you do finally enroll in Medicare, you are penalized a certain percentage because you were on COBRA and that will stay with you for life, for your entire time on Medicare. 
And there are a lot of different reasons why some people might go onto COBRA instead of going into Medicare. They may have already met their deductible under their employer plan. It may have to do with specific coverage for a spouse that hasn't aged onto Medicare yet and wanting to stay on the employer plan under COBRA. We also know that employer-sponsored coverage counts as creditable coverage under Medicare. And technically, COBRA is employer-sponsored coverage, so we think it should be treated the same. We are waiting on some bill numbers for this, so we don't have bill numbers quite yet, but as soon as we do, we will share them with you. Some pieces we do have bill numbers on that are also familiar talking points are bills for observation status, which would allow for observation stays to be counted toward the three-day mandatory inpatient stay for Medicare coverage, which counts towards being able to go into a skilled nursing facility. Right now, if you are classified as being on observation status and not inpatient status, then if you go on to receive care at a skilled nursing facility or a SNF, it's not covered the same way that it's covered under Medicare. So you would receive quite a large bill after receiving that care. And treatment as observation status and inpatient status many times is indistinguishable. You can't tell the difference between the care and the treatment, and the patient certainly can't tell the difference, and in many cases is not in the position to ask how they're being coded. So we think it's important that those observation stays count as inpatient stays so that the Medicare beneficiary isn't effectively receiving almost a surprise bill at the end of this treatment, and especially for those that go on to receive care in a SNF that won't be covered the same if they weren't coded as an inpatient. In addition to these talking points regarding Medicare, we also have a new talking point this year regarding a piece of long-term care legislation. Is that correct? That's correct, Dan. We have been working with Senator Toomey's staff to introduce a bill that allows individuals to use existing retirement accounts to pay for long-term care insurance. And really what this is doing is it allows individuals to pay up to $2,500 a year for long-term care insurance with their 401k, their 403b, and IRAs without incurring a tax penalty. So it's basically allowing individuals to be able to contribute to long-term care almost tax-free by being able to do this. And we hear all of the time in the media and other coverage about long-term care insurance, about the expense, about the need, especially with an aging population. And this is a step forward to allow folks who may have funds in those other accounts that aren't being used to be able to use those without any tax consequences to be able to invest in long-term care insurance. It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. What are we toasting to this week? This week, we're toasting to the end of the special enrollment period that was put into place by President Biden's executive order in January of this year, allowing for a special enrollment period during the pandemic, ending next week on August 15th. So if you have clients that are interested in getting individual coverage, make sure that they enroll by August 15th 
or they'll have to wait for open enrollment to begin later this fall. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.